This message is entitled, Prayer and the Sovereignty of God, and is given by Dr. Earl Rodmacher. Now, we concluded last hour with verse 18. I'd like you to notice verse 19. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul says, For I know that this, there we are back to it again, I know that this, that is my environment, my situation, my problem, shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul is linking two things together there as to why he knows this will turn to his salvation. He knows it because of what he knows about God, Philippians 1.6. He knows it also because of the power of prayer, Philippians 1.19. So that Paul here seems to have no problem in bringing together one's doctrine of God with one's doctrine of prayer. Now, interestingly enough, when we talk about the attributes of God, invariably you will have problems develop with regard to the prayer life. And it is true that you cannot separate one's prayer life from his concept of God. And that's why Daniel said in 11.32, the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Only to the extent that you know your God shall you be strong. It is important, then, that we know what God is like. Therefore, we've been studying the omniscience of God, the eternality of God, the immutability of God, the infinitude of God, and so forth. And we need to remind ourselves that God never deviates from those, even once. God never compromises what he is like, even once in order to answer your prayer or mine. Because he is immutable, he is consistent. The counsel that he gave yesterday will be consistent with the counsel that he gives tomorrow. God will never compromise what he is like in dealing with prayer. Therefore, prayer does not alter the purpose and plan of God. The purpose of God is worked out according to his good pleasure. So that Ephesians 1 says he does all things after the counsel of his own will, according to his own good pleasure. Now when you say that, immediately you have somebody raising the question, why pray? If God rules and overrules, if God does everything according to his own will anyway, why pray? Or, on the other hand, you have people who take no cognizance of what God is like, and they write books like the radio preacher some time ago that advertised a book he had just written on how to get what you want from God. That was one of those times when I almost wrote a letter again. And... This fellow writes a book about every couple of days, it seems like. He gets on the radio and he advertises a new book he's written. There are a lot of people like that today. And I remember when I heard that 
title the first time, How to Get What You Want from God, I just had to stop and thank God that there have been so many times I haven't gotten what I wanted from God. In his grace, he didn't give them to me. And I thought, how stupid, how absolutely immature for a man to write a book, How to Get What You Want from God. Well, how do you find a balance between it? How do you reconcile the need to pray with the fact of the sovereignty of God? I believe there are four things that we ought to consider, and I'd like to give them to you at this point. The first thing I would like to stress is that prayer is not meaningless and valueless. Now, Paul certainly believed that when he said in Philippians 1.19, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer. When you stop to think about that, that's an awesome thought. He was in Rome, and the people he was writing to were in Philippi. They were separated by hundreds of miles. And yet he is saying that their prayer life, via the throne of God, can affect his situation in Rome. They can do that without even being there. So he gives credit to their prayer life for the change he has in his life. So no doubt Paul believes that Prayer is valuable. It's part of the means whereby God is saving him daily. That's one good reason why prayer is made for the saints, because the saints need to be saved daily. Now, that's also why Paul could say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, in one of those nice short verses that people use for memorization, pray without ceasing. Comes right after another short one, rejoice evermore. Just think, those two you can add two to your list. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. I've gone through the routine that I suppose most other people have of trying to explain that away, you know. But obviously Paul didn't pray all day long. So what it means is Paul practice the spirit-filled life. And he was moment by moment controlled by the Spirit. Or what it means that Paul had an attitude of prayer when he said, I have not ceased to pray for you. Well, that doesn't seem to be what he's saying. He didn't say have an attitude of prayer. He says, pray. I think that means pray. Now, it doesn't mean that has to be verbal. It doesn't have to be spoken. We're all aware of the fact that we can pray quietly or we can pray audibly. But prayer is an activity. And prayer can be done with other things as well. It's possible to be doing several things at the same time. But I can only assume from this that Paul is saying I ought to be praying all the time. Every chance I get moment after moment. And when you go through and you read the things that Paul was praying for, you have no doubt in your mind that he prayed all the time. There'd be no other way you could pray for all the things he prayed for. Now, that does mean that you can't have your mind being filled with a lot of other things all the time. It means he concentrated on prayer because apparently he really believed in its value. 
And so he could say to the Colossians, since the day I heard of your faith, I haven't stopped praying for you. Twice he says that in one chapter. And he says the same thing with regard to the Philippians here in the first portions of the first chapter. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every time God brings you to my remembrance, I pray about you. Always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then later he goes on to tell more about what he prays for them. We are to pray one for another. At the end of the epistle, he closes it once again with an encouragement to pray one for another. So he says, pray without ceasing. Again, in Luke chapter 18 and verse 1, Jesus was about to speak a parable on prayer. And in introducing that parable, he has these words. And he spoke a parable unto them to this end, or for this purpose, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Just keep on praying. Now, when I read that, I'm reminded of Bud Hinkson. I suppose some of you must know Bud. He was directing the England ministry and now is directing the African ministry. And Bud was my first saturation experience with Campus Crusade, probably over 10 years ago now, 11 years ago. He was at University of Oregon, and I went down there for eight weeks in a row on Thursday night and spoke to the college life meeting and came back again, spent about six hours doing that, and it went on for eight weeks until we wore thin and gave it up. But I remember as we went down, we'd start with a prayer meeting at Bud's house. All of us got together that were involved. We'd pray. We'd leave the house, we'd go and get in the car, and we'd pray. We'd come up to a place where we were going to go to witness. Before we got out, we prayed. After we got out of the car, got ready to go in one direction, we prayed. What direction should we go? And I became impressed with one thing, that Bud really believed in prayer. He believed in the Bible, he believed in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he believed in prayer. And he prayed all the time. He really believed in prayer, and that was really attractive to me. Men ought always to pray and not to get tired of it, not to faint. And it is work. It doesn't come easily. One of the problems I have with some of the contemporary emphasis on prayer is that it treats prayer as though it comes too easily. Conversational prayer just leaves something to be desired in my mind. Not only treating God as some kind of a buddy-buddy that I saddle up to, but just a bit too easy. I don't see the sacrifice of praise involved too often. I take it that prayer is costly. It is work. It is hard work. But it's valuable. So men ought always to pray and not to faint. Or again in James chapter 5, verse 16, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And he gives the illustration of Elijah. Now you could go on and on with these, but surely that ought to be enough. Philippians 1, 19, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Luke 18, 1, James 5, 16, that ought to be sufficient statement from the Word of God to make us understand that prayer is valuable, prayer is important, prayer is meaningful. Now, whatever else we may conclude, we can't conclude that it's meaningless. 
And that's the first thing we ought to establish. So that the doctrine of the omniscience, the immutability, the sovereignty, the omnipotence of God does not militate against the value and meaningfulness of prayer if we take the Bible as God's word. Secondly, prayer is not intended to change God's purpose. 1 John 5, 14. Prayer is not intended to change God's purpose. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. How can we know that he hears us? By asking in the will of God. And if we know, then we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Prayer is not to alter or change God's purpose, will, plan, decree. 1 John 5, 14. Now, under that, let me make a couple of suggestions. One, we pray not that his plan may be altered, but accomplished in his own good time and way. We don't pray that it may be altered, but we pray that it may be accomplished in his own good time and way. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 34, we read, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? When did God ask you to be his counselor? When did God ask me to climb up on the throne with him and be a fourth member of the Trinity? No one has ever instructed God. No one has ever taught God. God has not asked anybody to be his counselor. God is infinite in wisdom as well as in grace. So we don't instruct God as to how to alter his plan. We pray in order that it may be accomplished in his own good time and way. Secondly, under that, it is because God has promised certain things that we can ask for them in full assurance of faith. It is because God has promised certain things that we can ask for them in full assurance of faith. That's what is involved in 1 John 5, 14. What is the will of God? Well, the secret things belong unto the Lord God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. The things that God has revealed of his will and his word are those things that we capitalize on. So we need to ask ourselves, what has God promised? And I think one of the safest ways to pray is to pray the promises of God. Now let me give what I feel is an outstanding example of that in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is a chapter that we usually refer to for the 24th through the 27th verses. That is, the 70 weeks of Daniel. But too often we forget about the first 23 verses of the chapter, which were the reason for the 24th through the 27th. And they are basically a prayer. And they are a prayer that is really rooted in history and in the Word. Listen to the way Daniel 
gives you the rooting for his prayer and history in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, that kind of nails it down, and then he goes on again. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years concerning which the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Daniel said, I was reading my Bible, and I was reminded again of something God's going to do. I came into captivity as a boy, 17 years of age, and I was now coming close to my 87th birthday. And God had promised Israel they were going to be in captivity for 70 years. God was going to take back from Israel all the years they stole from him. For 490 years, they stole the sabbatical year. And now God was going to take back the 70 years. So he sent them off the ground into Babylon. And now he's reading Jeremiah 25, and he realizes the time is about up. So, in his belief in the sovereignty of God, he just forgets about it and begins to prepare for the end of the captivity. Not at all. Not at all. He begins to pray. And he says in verse 3, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He really went at it. And I prayed unto the Lord, my God, and made my confession, and said, O Lord, the great and awesome God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Notice how he involves himself with what God is like. God who is faithful, God who is loyal, God who is the covenant-keeping God, God who is a holy God. He rehearses what God is like. And Daniel goes on with this down through the 19th verse. And he really pours out his heart to God. I want to contrast, I find in that, to what some people tell me confession is today. The confession is simply saying the same thing that God says. And so God says it's sin, and I say it's sin. And God says it's sin, and I say it's sin. And God says it's sin, and I say it's sin. And that I go lollygagging along through my life, Sinning and confessing and sinning and confessing and sinning and confessing. And it seems to me that some of these people have become more expert in confessing than they have in not sinning. And what God said is don't sin. And if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And when you appeal back to confession someplace else, all of a sudden they become hyper-dispensationalists and say, well, that is not for us, you know, we don't pray that way. You know, there's something about Daniel's prayers that are much more infectious to me than theirs. Daniel had a very real heart involvement with God. There was nothing mechanical about it. And don't ever make your salvation to be something that's on a different basis than this Old Testament saint. For God doesn't have two ways of salvation. People were saved in the Old Testament just like they're saved in the New Testament by faith. And the basis 
was always the death of Christ. We have more revelation of that death than they did in that day, but it's always been the death of Christ. God Almighty could not have performed one act in grace after the sin of Eve had it not been that they were working on the death of Christ foreordained from before the foundation of the world. And the object of faith was always God. Never has changed. The promises of God have increased, but the object has always been God. So that Daniel was saved by grace through faith on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ by believing in God. And I am saved by grace through faith on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ by believing in God. And having come into the family, there is a need for family relationships. And when there is mistreatment, there is need for confession and there is need for forgiveness. And don't let your understanding of what happened by way of a punitive judgment for your sins at the cross keep you from recognizing that there's a historical outworking of that that involves confession and forgiveness. Not just in a mechanical way, but in a very real way. And I think that Daniel's prayer here is one of the most thrilling experiences that you'll come across in the entire Word of God. Is this man who was a man that nobody could find anything against. If there was anybody that didn't have anything to confess, it was Daniel. They couldn't find anything to get against him. They wanted to get something, but they couldn't find it. Finally, the only thing they could complain about was his prayer life. Boy, I wish that was all people complained about me. And Daniel didn't do it in secret either, you know. He did it very openly. He went up and he opened up the dormers on the second floor and leaned out the window and prayed so they'd all know who his God was. And that's all that they could get against him, was that he prayed unto his God. And yet when Daniel prays, he says, we have sinned. We have sinned. Not just your people out there, God, me. It's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And so for 19 verses, he goes down like that, and he gets down to verse 19, and he says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. It's an interesting thing that the first verse of Daniel didn't keep Daniel from the 19th verse in chapter 9. He read according to the books and then he prayed like everything. And he addressed God as the awesome and covenant-keeping God and then he prayed like everything. His understanding of what God was like didn't keep him from praying. Now, was he really informing God? Was he telling God some things God didn't understand before? Listen to it in verse 20. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, Yea, while I was speaking in prayer. Notice twice he said that, beginning of the 20th verse, beginning of the 21st. While I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, and in the Old Testament the angels were the messengers of God to bring the revelatory word to them, which Daniel subsequently inscripturated, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. Here's illumination. 
at the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. So God interrupts his schedule, so to speak, to listen to Daniel's prayer, to answer it. And when does he answer it? At the end, when he's gotten informed? No, at the beginning, before Daniel even spoke. At the beginning of your prayer, the commandment came for me to come and bring you an answer. God is not really looking for information. He was not hard up until I prayed, and now he finally knows how to operate. God knows all things. But that didn't stop Daniel from praying the promises. He prayed in accordance with the will of God. By the way, Jesus Christ did the same thing in John 17, verses 5 and 11. You might, on your own, want to check that out at another time. Some have said God has given us a blank check. I don't believe that. God hasn't given us a blank check. There are a lot of promises in the Word that have an address on them. They have a designee on them. Or they have a condition on them. But God has given us a lot of checks we can cash in on. And we ought to know what they are, and we ought to be praying them. I can think of nothing more fruitful than praying the promises of God, for I can be sure that I'm in the will of God when I'm praying that way. Thirdly, prayer is the means that God has appointed for blessing his people. That underlying means. Prayer is the means God has appointed for blessing his people. God not only has ends in his will, he has means to ends in his will. And one of the important means in order to the ends is prayer. So God has ordained that we should pray. Therefore, though he has purposed and provided and promised certain things, yet he will be sought unto to give them. Prayer, then, is not meaningless repetition. Prayer is praying in keeping with the promises of God. God has promised something. Now part of his means of giving that is for us to ask. God says, you have not because you ask not. Or you have not because you ask amiss. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, But when you pray, use not vain repetitions, vain babblings, empty babblings, as the pagans do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. I have in my suitcase a sheet of paper that has instructions for being filled with the Holy Ghost that I picked up in Yakima, Washington. The first set of instructions say something like this. Now take the following phrases and repeat them for two or three minutes each, two or three times faster than normal. This is for a novice who wants to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the phrases are like, praise the Lord. And so you go, praise the Lord, 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 praise the Lord. And don't stop if you make a mistake, because the mistake might be the opportunity that God will use to allow you to speak ecstatically. Blessed be Jesus, blessed be Jesus, blessed be Jesus, blessed be Jesus, blessed be Jesus. Praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. I can't think of anything more pagan in my life. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions, as the pagans do. 
for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. We're talking to God, not a machine. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. Pastor I was with last Sunday was suggesting his little daughter had given him a good illustration of this that he had gone to a store and they'd seen a kite and she really got taken by this kite. So he said to her, next Monday uh, we'll go down and buy a kite. And so on each occasion after that she said, we're going to get that kite, Daddy? Every time she got in his lap, we're going to get that kite, Daddy? With anticipation. Not with doubt, with real anticipation that she just didn't let him forget it. By next Monday, we're going to get that kite. We're going to get that kite. God made a promise to Daniel. Daniel says, Lord, we're going to be released from captivity. We're going to be released from captivity, Lord. Thou art the awesome covenant-keeping God. How I thank you that we're going to be released from captivity. Prayer is the means that God has appointed for blessing his people. He doesn't need to be informed. He doesn't get smarter because we have prayed, but we evidence our dependence on him by our attitude in confessing our sense of need. Luther put it this way, and I like it. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. God wants to do it. And God wants you to ask. And he wants you to display your sense of need. He will be sought unto if he will give it. Fourthly, prayer honors and glorifies God. Prayer honors and glorifies God. And I'd like to turn just briefly here to Acts chapter 4. We alluded to it earlier in the week. Peter and John have been brought before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is disturbed because of the popularity that Peter and John are getting from the ministry they've been having. So they say among themselves, what shall we do to these men whom they've just put outside? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all those who dwell in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for what was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. 
And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, and here you have a beautiful example of following through the pattern of prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. Remember, when the disciples listened to Jesus pray, their appetite was so whetted by it that they said, Lord, teach us to pray. We'd sure like to be able to pray like that. And so the Lord said, after this manner, pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on and so forth. That prayer, as far as we know, Jesus never prayed, and therefore probably it ought not to be called the Lord's Prayer. But it was a pattern prayer that the Lord gave to his disciples in answer to their request to teach them how to pray. So it assumes that we need to be taught how to pray. And it begins with an ascription of praise to God the Father. And then there are petitions. And interestingly enough, this does the same thing. Lord, thou art God, who has made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. Nothing that exists is apart from thee. Who by thy mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the nations rage and the peoples imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the nations and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So in the first verse, they ascribe to the Lord the attribute of eternality and creator, omnipotence, and in the following verses, his sovereignty his wisdom, his will. And then after saying something about what God is like, then they say, and now, Lord, by way of petition, behold their threatening, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness, filling all he has to do with an object. And the object was they were being told not to speak. They asked God for boldness to speak. They prayed God gave them boldness to speak. They were controlled by the Holy Spirit, and consequently they spoke the word of God with boldness, and God was glorified. Here you have God's sovereignty and man's responsibility woven together in one beautiful prayer following the pattern of prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples. So those four things stand out to me in a doctrine of prayer and the sovereignty of God. I want to first of all recognize that prayer is meaningful and valuable. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. I want to recognize, secondly, that God is sovereign and therefore he has a purpose and my prayer is not intended to change his purpose. But it is because his will is sovereign that I may pray with confidence 
not that his plan will be altered, but that it may be accomplished according to his own good purpose. And then thirdly, that the means whereby God is going to do that is my prayer. And fourthly, that this kind of praying will honor and glorify God, and it will thrill his servant. That, to my understanding, is prayer united together with the sovereignty of God.